They're spooky. They're bitches. They're the spooky bitches of Lubbock. And they're coming to YouTube September 2019. Follow the Spooky Six as they navigate the alternative art scene in Lubbock, Texas. If you love Halloween, art, Lubbock, and the things that go bump in the night, follow the Spooky Six on Facebook and Instagram. They're not basic bitches. They're spooky bitches. Comics. Uh, I am Andrew Farmer. With me, as always, the Jedi Cole Houston. Good evening, everybody. Hey. So uh, we um, last week, first of all, we were blessed with a, with a magnificent guest, first timer Danny Gallagher. Um, did the show that um, could have been pretty rough, a lot of justice. <laughs> but you know, we are we are blessed on this show. This has been a like we said after 300 we were gonna we were gonna pull out all the stops on guests and we we haven't stopped. We, we were gonna finally do this right. <laughs> it only took 300 <laughs> hours. That's right. Um, and this is and, and tonight is 100 percent no exception to that um, to that which we promised. Um, though I will say this at this point, this is going to be a coal-driven show. I'm going to uh, go get in the shotgun seat with the ox cord and play them young kids <laughs> musics while Cole uh, drives us uh, to uh, to the summer of love. So uh, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Cole and just make my requisite uh, poop jokes. Thumbs there you go. Yeah. So, well, very good. Uh, we are, uh, first off, I want to uh, say that we uh, have had the good fortune yet again on this show to have uh, Michael Price joining us. Oh, man. Uh, which we are always thrilled to have you on the show. Uh, well, my pleasure. It is an education, and it's amazing. <laughs> and it's one of those, like, because Cole and I will go back and listen to, you know, shows or talk about shows. Whenever you're on the show, we, you can hear us just like, <laughs> like students in a classroom with like, uh, like Dead Poets Society just wrapped in what's going on. So... <laughs> So thank you so much. Yes, thank you for elevating us yet again. Hey, my pleasure. It's what we do. Very good. Well, Michael, we invited you here today because this is, uh, what is this, our 325th issue of the show. Mm -hmm. And it was high time, pun grossly intended, that we cover <laughs> the underground comics movement in a show that could only be titled, Hey Adults comics with an X. There you go. <laughs> because uh, this one, you, you kind of want to take the kids away from this particular issue, because we're probably going to delve into some things that uh, one was way before their time. <laughs> right, they're just going to be bored and wander off. It's... That's right. <laughs> but also, it's a bit naughty. So, I, I think we should preface this uh, 
with a little bit of a personal story. Andrew, before the show, mentioned something. And I was reminded of my parents in the 70s caught the antiquing bug in a big way. And needless to say, one gets drug into the middle of that as a child. And I remember seeing, oh, looky, some comic books. And there was an oh, antique oh. shop that had, yeah, they had some metal <laughs> men and some other uh, comics laying around. And then there was like a little bitty black and white comic book laying on top of an old table or a piano or something. And I was flipping through it, and it was explicit sexual content. <laughs> Probably an R. Chrome. Well, actually, the, the funny thing is it would be many, many years later that it would be defined for me in the pages of Watchmen. What I had in my hands was colloquially known as a Tijuana Bible. Oh, an eight-pager. Yeah, sure. Yes. Those, were, those were the undergrounds before the underground. Exactly. And so I, I kind of got my entree into that and, and would eventually discover the work of R. Crumb and others. And then, uh, Andrew, uh, you had a, a bit of a brush with the... Uh... I'm trying to remember the book, because I don't think we can classify it as uh, a comics with an X, but it is de it definitely took its um, implications from, from that period. You know, after that period is where I kind of got into where things started to loosen up a little bit, um, you know, into the early 90s. You know, in the in the 80s, sure. we still were, were kind of suffering under the comics code a little bit there where, you know, people started to, you know, say, why are we even putting this on our comics? Let's just take it off and do what we want. But, you know, into that, there was a book and it was called Southern and I'll have to look it up. But I was at I was probably 12. And as a child, I was um, I'm not going to say I was, but, but, you know, Cole and I have, we could be, I'm, sometimes I think that um, I'm just Cole from the future, like Looper, that's jumped back in time, not necessarily to take him out, but just to allow him to experience what he was like about 10 years prior. Um, <laughs> so my, my parents as well had the uh, antiquing bug. My dad, is, as we've discussed many times on this show, was a comic book aficionado as well as I'm sure he had plenty of comics and Tijuana Bibles in his time. Um, but also, you know, tin toys and any, 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 you know, little, little plastic cowboys, anything you could get your hands on. So we would go antiquing. And one of his favorite things to do was when we would go out is take me to half price books. So he could look at dime store novels and I could look at comics. Well, when I was about 12, I stumbled upon my first comic with nudity in it. And I am, nope. To this day, at 42 years old, about the most straight-laced guy you can find, and that did not that did not belong in my comic books. <laughs> I did not understand why that. You know, I I don't think to this day, you know, old 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 pops knows that I found a comic with uh, with the female nudity in it because I just couldn't. What was I, the What was the book called? It was called Southern. Like Southern, it wasn't Southern Bastards. It wasn't that recent. Um, I'll have to try to. I have it in one of my long boxes to this day because Ooh. I went out when I was like 16 when I could drive <laughs> and went to uh, Bookery Fantasy, which was in Fairboard, which we have talked about on this show before. Sure. Um, and uh, our, my, my local comic shop and bought and, and found it in back issues and bought it with the help of one Kevin oh Atkins goodness. who listens to the show periodically comic creator in his own right now. Um, mm -hmm. So I have it 
in one of these long boxes, I and I will try to find it to take pictures of for Facebook and Instagram. But um, but what was really to me, you know, and I've I've realized the artistic and cultural value of of comics, you know, post my childhood. Um, but most striking to me is that do that, you know, the implication of, of what it was wasn't as important at that point or the implication of what it was was probably more than what it represented and it's certainly historic you know it was it was a shock to my system as a, as a youngin to see that for sure sure so now we're going to delve into the actual history of the undergrounds which as i say you know it just shy of 54 this this was a movement that was beginning to appear places. I would get uh, things like the Bud Plant catalog back yeah. when I was in high school, and there, it was just chock-a-block full of reprints of these things that I had some vague notion of from years before. But uh, I certainly the most prominent uh, figure, uh, for the, the figurehead of the underground comics movement would have to be uh, R. Crumb or Robert Crumb. And I'm, uh, I would imagine you have a greater familiarity with his work than either of us. <laughs> I discovered Crumb uh, in his, uh, oh, I suppose, late teen years uh, when he was doing greeting cards for the American Greetings Company. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> years, years later, when we finally met in person and collaborated on a play together, um, I mentioned that discovery, I, you know, I was, I was in high school working in a uh, department store at the shoe department, and across the aisle was the stationery department, and you get a slow night, you wander across the aisle and <laughs> check out the new funny greeting cards, and here was a line of cards in a style I had never seen before, although they looked like Depression period art. It was the American Greetings Highbrows series. Interesting. And lively, animated-looking, very cartoonish, very much you could tell whoever drew them had been watching the Fleischer Brothers 30s cartoons, for example, and uh, bought a few, bought a few more, enjoyed them. <laughs> um, a few years later, I was in uh, college and uh, started at the campus newspaper office to get the uh, exchange papers, including a lot of underground newspapers, and by golly, here's that same style that I had noticed in the in the perfectly innocent, goofy greeting cards. And uh, and of course, they these were not perfectly innocent. In fact, they were <laughs> quite taboo. And the signature read R. Crumb. I said, that's got to be a <laughs> got to be a pen name. Turned out it wasn't. Of course, um, you can't disguise a style like that. No, you can't. Because if you're unfamiliar, uh, do take a moment and. Google Robert Crumb and just kind of peruse his body of work because it is a very distinctive. You can see that style a mile away, no matter what oh, yeah. he's doing. If it's cartoony, well, or I could I could tell I could tell his influence. Sure, I, I could I could spot his influences. Of course, uh, the uh, in particular uh, uh, period depression cartoonist named Gene Ahern who did a wonderful gag strip called The Nut Brothers, Chestnut and Walnut. And, <laughs> I love it. And, and in fact, and in fact the, the Ahern cartoons contain a figure who is very obviously an inspiration for Crumb's character, Mr. Natural. 
And, um, you know, I, I mentioned in, in our early correspondence, uh, as we were kind of building up toward the idea of doing a play together, uh, that I had noticed these American greeting cards uh, during the early middle 60s. And he said, how did you know that was me? <laughs> There's no disguising that style. I mean, Absolutely. he wasn't—he wasn't—he wasn't being disingenuous. He was like, "You mean I've got a style of my? Own? Of course, you've got a style of your own, and uh, it's recognizable no matter uh, whether he's doing uh, straight, lifelike illustration or exaggerated gag cartoons." Can, may, well, I inter- may I interject for a second? Yes. Only, yeah. only. With Sir Michael Price, do you get a story that starts before I developed a play with Robert Crumb? Um, that's amazing. That you 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 definitely dropped that line and went on, and I was like, wait, wait, can we back up? Because oh, it, there, there's 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 more to that, of course. Uh, but it was not the play that we did together originated during the early '80s. It first. Uh, went on stage live in 1985. Uh, That's pretty much outside the province of the underground movement, although certainly artists like Crum and his his contemporaries have done a lot to keep that underground spirit in circulation. Uh, Jay Lynch, the Chicago cartoonist, uh, told me in 1972 or 3 that the underground movement is dead. No more underground. I said, well, okay, how does that explain Arcade Magazine? How does that explain uh, Artie Spiegelman's uh, magazine, Raw? How does that explain uh, Crumb's own Weirdo Magazine, which uh, persists in garnering interest even into the present day? In fact, there's a new book out called The Book of Weirdo, which is a history of that magazine. Really? So, you know, and, and, and of course, a lot of the original practitioners, um, Crum himself, Spiegelman, uh, Gilbert Shelton of the uh, fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, uh, Frank Stack of the uh, amazing comic series called The New Adventures of Jesus. <laughs> all these guys, not not all of the original undergrounders, but those representative figures and, and others are still producing fine work. That is amazing. In fact, uh, in my research, uh, trying to get a little bit more background on this thing that was always sort of in the background of my own life, I I did see uh, The Adventures of Jesus uh, was one of the titles that stuck out. And there was another that, uh, what was the name of it? Uh, There was, uh, in one article I read, there was some conjecture as to you know, who could hold the title of, you know, the original underground comic. And it was, uh, there was conjecture if it was Wonder Warthog, who I remember seeing that uh, pop up periodically. Mm-hmm. And there was another one, and I have lost, uh, oh, God Knows, which was uh, apparently a reprints uh, done in Texas of uh, a student uh, paper strips. Actually, God Knows was an original book by Jack Jackson, who signed his name J-A-X-O-N, done while he was working for the state comptroller's office in Austin. (laughs) And uh, in in fact, the original printing was done on a press in the 
basement of the Texas State Controller's no way. office building. No oh, yeah. way. I mean, these homegrown, homegrown DIY publishing uh, is like a hardy weed. It finds <laughs> its own fertility. Oh, and what better story and, than to have had its origins, you know, this, this sort of irreverence that uh, long before everybody was trying to keep Austin weird, Jackson is making Austin weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jackson had a wonderful career. We worked together on some uh, little projects. Uh, we, in fact, there was a time during the early 90s when Jackson and I were both working for Texas A&M University Press, not on the same projects, of course, but at the same time. And uh, he had uh, come full circle from the underground movement, great deal of prominence from Austin to San Francisco and then back to Austin. Um, and he uh, wound up doing straight historical artwork, but always reserved the right to continue doing comics. And then on the side, he would he would attack a a, a new underground type of project uh, called the, well one uh, one book called the Secret of San Saba, which merges Texas history with uh, classic style horror comics. Really, I am familiar with that title, but I was never familiar enough with the content. That was, uh, as I recall, seeing that when I was working for Diamond Comic Distributors back when oh, I was. Oh yeah, yeah, it was it presents. was one of the one of the more impressive jobs from Dennis Kitchen's company, Kitchen Sink Press, and of course Dennis is one of the original first generation undergrounders who has remained in the arena and quite productive. This is amazing. Oh, it's, this is amazing. <laughs> I'm learning everything. This is so cool. Well, you know, and sort of the, the post-underground movement, uh, Kitchen Sink Press uh, really uh, kind of made my several years by having um, rescued Omaha the Cat Dancer from the demise oh, yeah. of Steel Dragon Press, uh, which you right. know, sadly might have gone unknown uh, were it not for Kitchen Sink well, Dennis Kitchen is a, a national treasure. <laughs> the uh, the the whole movement uh, continues to move, even though the you know the summer of love collapsed quickly, and uh, once the once the uh, as my cousin Roger Price used to say once once you start seeing love beads and peace symbols on sale at Woolworths and J.C. Penney, you, you know the movement is over. <laughs> that's, that's one good way to kill a movement is just to co-opt it. <laughs> yeah, commercialize. Well, uh, commercialization is necessary, but it must remain within the control of the creative talents. Absolutely. And, uh, that's that's why Crum has so long resisted selling out to corporate interests. Uh he uh, he occasionally has done a you know like major labeled stuff like the uh, like the Big Brother and the Holding Company album with Janis Joplin that he delivered uh, album art for in uh, what sixty eight. Uh, once in a while you'll see a crumb show up in an issue of Playboy, but uh, generally speaking, Crumb has uh, forged his own path and uh, not relied on patronage. That, and that, just like that, we're tied back to our last episode. 
Oh, that's so true. About uh, we did a, an entire issue on uh, basically comic book icons being appropriated to other purposes, and uh, this oh, is sort yeah, of the sure. reverse. It's, it's rampant. In fact, uh, Crumbs. Just... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I was just saying. I just, I just uh, finished a second reading through uh, Julian Volage's uh, recent book, The Joe Schuster Story, oh. about the creation of Superman. And ooh, is that ever a downer? <laughs> uh, Schuster and his partner Jerry Siegel, uh, uh, you know, teenagers from Cleveland who had created this uh, incredibly popular character, basically sold out naively for a hundred and thirty bucks. Never and then, imagining. Yeah. <laughs> and then found themselves at risk of being fired from their own creation. Uh, yeah, commercialization. There, there are there are degrees of commercialization that range from the acceptable to the tolerable to the you know, <laughs> demeaning. And uh, the underground artists, uh, Jay Lynch, I mentioned him before. He he remained true to his muse, but he also realized that he himself was his own muse. And if he sold out, it was going to be on his terms. That's why Jay ended up doing uh, well, like cartoons for Topps Bubblegum oh, in addition to his own underground work. That's why that's why Skippy Williamson, uh, another one of the Chicago talents, um, wound up as uh, in an art director hitch at Playboy, but always reserved the right to control his properties. That's awesome. And I think that's a, an important message about the underground comics movement because things like in the 90s where you see the rise of image comics where creators are starting to demand recognition within the giant corporate structure, it's not like they were the first artists to say, hey, this is my stuff. It was just on a much smaller level that mm-hmm. appealed to a much smaller audience and had oh, yeah, yeah. limited distribution at best, but still made an impact on the culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, a lot of people, a lot of people who discovered Crumb through his uh, <laughs> Janis Joplin album artwork, for example, um, they were <laughs> they didn't know what they were getting into when they set out to find additional Crumb work. Uh, I think they were, like they were the worse who, off than that girl who uh, was watching the Teen Titans cartoon oh, growing up yes. and then freaked out when she found out her favorite character, Starfire, was something of a sex pot in the comics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, and, and you find you find evidence of that, that syndrome all over, like the people who discovered John Waters through the movie Hairspray. <laughs> and, oh, that's what a sweet movie. I've got to go yeah. see more movies by John Waters. And it's like <laughs> Pink Flamingo what? sounds like a nice family film it reminds me of my boogie night exactly and and uh uh, of course to know the artist you've got to know the whole artist you can't just cherry pick the uh, the most accessible favorites (laughs) that is so true and uh you spoke of you know robert crumb especially uh was very outspoken against commercialization uh years ago we saw the the documentary crumb in the uh, theater which we were very Mm -hmm. anxious to be able to catch on the big screen and I highly recommend that uh, everybody go out and find this because Robert Crumb is an amazing individual and to hear a lot of his own story in his own words. But one of the things that he was the most incensed about was mm-hmm. the keep on trucking image and what that became. 
I got, I got the distinct impression this was just a little throwaway something, and then all of a sudden it snowballs into exactly the thing that he is against. That he disdains, yeah. There's, uh, um, he was uh, in, when he did the Keep on Trucking cartoon or cartoons. In fact, there were a number of them. Uh, he was just riffing on a favorite old jazz tune from the 30s. Oh my goodness! Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of if you look at Crumb's artwork, you can see the music in it, and a lot of what he does is inspired by favorite uh, jazz, traditional country fiddle music of the 1920s, Appalachian ballads of the uh, 19th into the 20th centuries, things like that. It's very rhythmic cartooning. And uh, like devil did girl. keep on trucking. Say again? I said like devil girl. Like devil girl, yeah. It, it, it just he, He'll have an inspiration. He'll act on it. And the next thing you know, somebody sitting up in the in the uh, black towers of corporate America says, "I can make some money off this." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, you know, Robert uh, Robert never pretended to be uh, possessive or territorial or even particularly savvy about protecting one's work until um, he got burned enough times. Mm, and, yes. Yeah. That, like yeah okay this is mine I uh, uh, he was particularly incensed by the uh, hippie crash pad blacklight uh, hyper saturated color versions of his cartoons. And, oh yeah, so many of those uh, yeah. things in their day became if you either had a poster or a T-shirt or oh, yeah. some other uh, element that had uh, some of his more famous works. And in fact, I, I'm sure the statute of limitations has long since expired, but back in the, I would say, late 60s, early 70s, um, my uncles were living in the uh, garage apartment behind our grandmother's house. And, uh, <laughs> I like where this is going already. There was a sort of uh, closet that had the, the sliding doors. Mm-hmm. And on one of these aluminum sliding doors was painted a field of red upon which in black and white was Robert Crumb's long-legged, big-footed, mm-hmm. keep-on-trucking guy with keep-on-trucking in the same fondal. One of the uncles had painted on there. And that remained mm-hmm. for decades. Wow. I, I think I, I, it's probably still there. I, I, I wonder if the new owners may have, like, found the door and, and wondered what was underneath the paint there. It's sort of like the, the many different versions of Mona Lisa before the final one. You know, somebody will x-ray it <laughs> and discover the art underneath. Uh, you know, what's interesting to me is we were discussing um, kind of the uh, the history and the, and the anthropology of the underground comic and how – you know, no matter how many times you're going to the fact that the underground comic is, quote, dead, right? The underground scene is dead. We consistently mm-hmm. see it reemerge, right? We, we, we see it sure. in different in different ways and in different fashions. You you know, from from the from the 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 peace and love movement to things like kitchen sink to things like mirage. Uh, with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started kind of that way. Guys in, in their in their mom's living room, you know, lying about their studio name, 
because they wanted people to think they were a big deal, which I think is still one of my favorite facts that I've ever learned on this show. Um, is Mirage is that you know they chose Mirage because it was a Mirage. They didn't have a giant studio. They but they didn't have the backing. But they were you know they that's what they were doing up into like you said Image and then up into when we start seeing things like like web comics. You know, those, yeah. those I think are the evolution of that underground movement. You give people the the ability and the kind of channels to be creative, and they're going to figure out a way to make it exist in whatever you know, in whatever zeitgeist you want to put it in. They're going to be in right. that and just creating. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really interesting um, to watch that evolution and to hear about what happened and then kind of watch. You can you can pinpoint. That that you know instant evolution from okay we're going to jump to this because this has been co-opted, or this has been you know this has been buried by the man. Now we're going to move <laughs> to this. Oh now this has been buried. Okay so we're going to move to this. Like you know I think it's a natural. We're talking about very creative people. This is a natural um, avenue for a creative person to take. I'm going to express myself in the in the best way I know how. Sure, quite so. No, it always finds an outlet. You can't uh, stifle the creative impulse. And the uh, absence of... Because there were more taboos in place in the middle 60s. Uh, Frank Stack had started his Adventures of Jesus cartoons uh, much earlier than that. might have a uh, might have a, a good claim to being first of its kind, but there really are no absolute definitions as to absolutely when this started. Uh, started in fits and starts uh, in different parts of the country. Uh, Gilbert Shelton uh, and Frank Stack down at Austin at UT uh, in the late 50s at the Humor Magazine, the Campus Humor Magazine, Texas Ranger. Uh, that could be an early underground college newspaper cartoons from the 60s. Uh, Harvey Kurtzman, uh, the creator of MAD, often professed that uh, the earliest college campus newspaper cartoons might have prior claim on uh, earliest undergrounds. That is a good and va- very valid point because there was so much going on in that environment because in many ways – the college newspaper and the college humor magazine was insulated from the rest of mm-hmm. the publication world. And oh, didn't... yeah. Well, that's, you know, the Harvard Lampoon is an extreme example. And that being uh, what it was at the time of what it was, it was like the Springboard to National Lampoon, which had a good long run. Not truly underground because it was slick and corporate and <laughs> nationally distributed, but it had that spirit at the same time. And also, in many ways, I think that the underground comics movement was almost a, allowed for a sort of right up front corporate, what would almost have been, had they had the ability to produce in sharp color and glossy pages, things like um, eerie and creepy, which, of course, uh, undermine this because they were in black and white, but you had heavy metal. Sure. And these were things that I was going and buying them like 16 or 17 on open newsstand shelving in the grocery store. You go to the A&P and, and <laughs> I remember a friend of mine snuck a copy of 1984 into the, into school one day. And we were looking at some, um, I'm 
drawing a blank on it. Richard Corbin. Oh, uh, Corbin, sure. I think that may have been where Den was first published or something very similar at any rate. And no, I guess it was that was in heavy metal because they used it in the that movie. Was, that, but, was, uh, that was the heavy metal one. Yeah. Uh, but, he, but, you the, know, that was a big well, deal with dirty comics <laughs> in school. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Corbin had his origins uh, as well in the undergrounds. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you can. Uh, there was a wonderful Corbin underground called Fantagore. I've heard uh, of that I've one, the, too, yes. I've had the pleasure of handling some original artwork from that one recently. And, yep, Corbin is everything he's cracked up to be. <laughs> <laughs> and what's, what's amazing is, remember, this would have been in, like, night, like oh, gosh, maybe 1979, 1980, something like that, and they within a few issues, the title 1984 became 1994 because they realized they were barreling up on their own title name. Yep, yep, yep. Chronologically. And, oh, yeah, well, it's all, always dangerous to date a project up front. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and even 1994 came along uh, long after that title was gone. Uh, it was hard to compete, I think, with Heavy Metal, who had that kind of footprint. Mm -hmm. But there came a period where, little by little, you couldn't go and find those in the grocery store. I think someone finally wised up, you know, right here next to Woman's Day. <laughs> was, you know, Richard Corbin characters running around with giant phalluses hanging out from between their legs. And, mm -hmm. uh, and might have made a Woman's Day for all we know, but it's just, uh, it was, it was a, a, an unusual time. And then um, by the time I was in college, uh, I, the uh, what was it the comic buyer's guide was that the the newspaper? Yes. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. You know that's where I found out uh, after uh, the likes of like say Bud Plant's catalogs, what was going on in the in the more adult oriented. And by the time I was working for Diamond for about ten years, we were it was during the indie comic boom anyway, and there was a sort of little sidebar boom going on with very adult oriented comics. Sure. Sure, that's uh, you can't keep an impulse from uh, finding its own level. <laughs> I want that printed on a shirt. <laughs> that's right. There were certainly some impulses there, and there was a level at which they were operating. But what was fascinating is during that period, there were some, even in the adult books, there were some really good, well-written, well-drawn comics, and then there were, of course, mm -hmm across the board during that movement, regardless of the genre, there was some god-awful stuff being put in. Be it yeah, and that's, that's, or that's funny how you know, some of the more important figures uh, in the underground movement, the original period, um, to, an, to an art-educated eye, these guys couldn't draw. <laughs> uh, Rory Hayes, for example. But, he, but there was something urgent about Rory Hayes' extremely crude cartooning. Uh, no accounting for taste, of course. Uh, <laughs> I've uh, I've always admired the gumption it took for Vaughn Baudet to do his uh, dead bone cartoons. Yes, I remember in, those uh, in the Lampoon. And uh, it's like I think I've seen this one, therefore I may have seen them all. Well, no accounting for taste. Uh, Baudet brought something unique to the table. Uh, Crumb brings a lot of unique qualities to the table. And I know people who, well, I've heard, um, oh, gosh, I've, uh, 
some of the acknowledged great comic book artists um, who would pride themselves on their uh, command of anatomy, for example. Uh, Gil Kane, I've, uh, I've heard him dismiss Crumb as an amateur. Oh, like, well, you know, Crumb was an amateur, and he got <laughs> pro as quick as he could get pro, and he never lost faith with what he was trying to do in the first place. And didn't realize um, he had a style. Yes, exactly. He didn't realize he had a recognizable style. That's uh, a commitment to art as opposed to a commitment to becoming famous. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yet, uh, uh, I've never heard never heard Crumb dismiss another artist's work. And if you look at his track record with that magazine called Weirdo, you'll see that he did not, during that period, discriminate between accomplished artistry and mere artistic energy because there's some really crude work in weirdo and it's why is it there well because because crumb said it belonged there right any other questions yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the, that's really the that's really the basic rule in appreciation of any kind of art is that there is no accounting for taste and i mean that in the nicest possible way <laughs> and, and, and in fact that's rather appropriate to uh an artist or uh, a creator who crossed my mind during this discussion is uh, the cartoonist John Callahan, who, mm -hmm. by you know his very uh, limited ability, um, given his condition when you get into cartooning, is beyond crude, but it sorts beautifully with the crude humor that a lot of that body of work espouses. Mm -hmm. One of the more famous, I remember seeing him profiled decades ago on some news magazine. And then, um, what was it, a uh, couple of years ago or last year, the uh, movie Don't Worry, You Won't Get Far on Foot. Uh, oh, yeah. I highly recommend that film as uh, another to check out. But I, I'm like, oh, my God, this is that guy I remember seeing, like, in college being profiled. And, uh, you know, one of the, my favorite truly crude yet speaking volumes about you know basically railing against racism is a cartoon of these clansmen leaving a house in their robes and uh one of them remarking i really love that fresh out of the dryer smell again it comes uh, very much into that there's no accounting for taste but yet even in the crude and sharp humor there there's an artistic value Oh, sure, sure. It's, it, has it got something to say? Well, if it does, it'll pop out at you no matter what the style is, no matter what the level of artistic accomplishment is. And, uh, you know, you don't do it. We can't all be, we can't all be Bern Hogarth. <laughs> Speaking of another, you know, intolerant of the undergrounds, a great artist who, ah. uh, made no in our conversations when we'd veer toward uh, what was contemporary and as opposed to what was classical, uh, dismissed out of hand so many up-and-coming talent, well, Crum included, that uh, you think, okay, Burn, I appreciate your command of your superior artistry, but, uh, you know, I also have a hell of a good time reading Crum. And, uh, oh, it's a bit like the, the classical art 
uh, you know, the, the sort of greater body of art education, you know, might be sitting high on a Raphael hobby horse and uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, espousing uh, what is and is not art in the Yeah, well, it boils down to that sense. question, uh, 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 who gets to call it art anyhow? Right, that's so true. Well, one I want to talk about before we close, uh, that of the, the two key figures or the, the key things I remember seeing a lot of in my vague awareness of the underground was, of course, Robert Crumb and then the fabulous furry Freak Brothers. Because oh, I yeah, discovered... Shelton. Yeah, their existence I discovered about the same time my older brother and I discovered Cheech and Chong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. And so I always thought this well, was... Yeah. The, yeah, un- unattainable. We could sneak a Cheech and Chong album in that we found at the grocery store, but it was unlikely I could have Bud Plant send me uh, underground comics and not uh, receive some scrutiny at home. Yeah. It's for it pays to be in the Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, it pays to stay in touch with the things that uh, appealed to you early on and determine well, first of all, whether they hold up as more than nostalgia and whether they say new things to you in addition to what they they originally exerted. Uh, The beauty of Gilbert Shelton, especially the Freak Brothers stories, is that (laughs) his cartoons work on levels of classical comic strip values. Yes. I mean, uh, a good story. One of the Freak Brothers stories... Uh, probably uh, will contain as many laughs per panel as a classic Blondie or a classic Popeye. That is yeah, so true, uh, and I'm sure Bern Hogarth wouldn't agree. But there you go. <laughs> oh, well, no, no, no. In all due respect. But, uh, uh, but yeah, if you if you have that, that willingness to uh, let these things be approachable, it's some fascinating things that were going on within the, that movement and. Uh, within the, the styles that uh, now you can see their influences to this day. Sure, yeah. What? Well, it uh, it's not uh, it's not a uh, movement that's going to die out anytime soon. Uh, the the days of the hate Ashbury uh, were numbered <laughs> to begin with, because a boom invariably leads to a bust. And I kind of wanted to ask. You know what I mean. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, I, I, I kind of wanted to speak to that a little bit during the, you know, I'm I'm raising my hand at this point for you two, um, uh-huh. at this point in the TED Talk, just uh, solely for me, which I think is amazing. Um, what was the... Um, so so you had this, you know, the peace love movement, and and I and I think we got away from that fairly early in this conversation. Like how yeah. did that? How did those two things dovetail? Like you know, you had the you had the, the summer of love, you had the peace and love movement, and like you said, it got co-opted at some point where you could you could buy blacklight posters at Spencer Gifts. And that uh, defeats <laughs> that's purpose defeating, right? Against against what everything meant. Um, but how did how did comics kind of dovetail into that counterculture? We we're all, I think we're all pretty familiar with um, that movement at this point. It's been fairly well documented. I'm pretty sure you know Ken Burns mm-hmm. has something on it at this point somewhere. Oh, on, there there are good books uh, of of uh, uh, 
many uh, many different areas of interest in the underground history. Uh, the uh, compatibility of the uh, of the <laughs> you know the hippie scene with the undergrounds was that they were not necessarily all that compatible. <laughs> Crumb had not much love for the love and peace and grass movement. Really? Uh, although although he settled into it for a period, uh, the mutual appeal was uh, breaking the middle class rules of behavior. Okay. That's interesting. And yeah. being what can you get away with? <laughs> well... Uh, what the cartoonists were getting away with was not unlike the beat poetry movement of the post-war mid-century. Okay. Uh, saying things that might be considered unsayable, not only in polite company, but in official company. Yes. Breaking the Breaking the orderly rules that kept uh, them and us, as it were, polarized. Okay, yeah. and and you know, I, it, it's 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 funny how the uh, uh, I've I've seen uh, as as a youngster and as a as a uh, college campus journalist, uh, I've seen uh, distinguished deans of the school go on these hysterical rants against <laughs> comic books and what they were doing to the moral fiber of our youth. And uh, uh, I've, uh, I've, some of my books have been condemned from the pulpit on top of that. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think the uh, breaking of taboos, well, you've got to test the barriers. Okay. If the barriers, if the barriers won't stand the pressure, maybe they don't need to be there in the first place. Interesting. That's, yes. That, that could not have been more well Articulated. That's the sort of thing I struggle sometimes to come to uh, come to a reasonable way to express, and that certainly uh, says it all right there. Mm -hmm. Oh man, um, do I have any more? I have no insight, so I'm just putting that into the world right now. I am I am outmatched. Um, there's a Kasparov no. situation with you two and me tonight that I can't. Um, we're all in the same. We're all in the same I'm, event together. I'm in. I'm no Bobby <laughs> Fisher tonight, baby. Um, <laughs> uh, let me talk about Bendis's Avengers run, and I can I can wipe the floor. Uh, Cole, do you have anything that you want to? Because we need we do need to start thinking about wrapping this up. Do you have anything? No, absolutely. That, I that you want to close on. I just want to uh, touch on the fact that, uh, number one, Michael, uh, if hmm. you and Robert Crumb's play is ever produced anywhere in the world again, <laughs> I will move heaven and earth to go see that. Because to me, that's like the film of uh, Groucho Marx and Salvador Dali that never got made. I just I need to oh, see what yeah. this would be. Because well, the, I can uh, the, those two minds. Uh, the probably. original the original cast album is in print, of course. Uh, I believe it is in fact at Amazon. Uh, what do we need to look for? I have, yeah, I think everybody in the world needs to know about this. <laughs> I uh, I've just in fact I've been recycling some of the uh, Crumb Show music. Uh, past couple of weeks or so into a new series of collections of my uh, Texas swing music. 
because, oh, of course, nice. so much of what we used in the show was traditional Texas swing. Really? Uh, or sometimes known as cow jazz. Nice. What is the name uh, when, of this one? The, the play itself? Uh, yes, please. The original play was called R. Crumb Comics with an X. Really? Uh, we've used that title. It's been restaged, oh gosh, 85 was the original. I believe there was one in uh, about 1990, and then um, interim restagings and, and variations. The last formal staging of R. Crumb Comics was quite different from the original play, and that was in 2006 at Hip Pocket Theater in Fort Worth. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. We had a, had a wonderful, wonderful actor named Gerald Blow portraying Robert, and uh, it, uh, it revives itself. There's, there's no, no telling when it'll show up again because I've kept the uh, um, musical components intact. I mean, the arrangements are right where I left them last time we used them, and uh, it, uh, it comes in quite handy. The, uh, uh, as far as I know, some of the costumes are still in the hip pocket. Could <laughs> 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 very well be. But, uh, well, that is uh, you never can tell. And, 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 of course, a lot of the original players are still amongst us. The, uh, the, for my money, the first and best is the 85 version. <laughs> And uh, partly because Robert was able to take direct part in the staging, even to the point of uh, we've we've secured a uh, banjo for him to play on opening weekend in the orchestra pit, and all these crumb uh, fanboy gawkers came out to see if they could spot the legend, <laughs> and of course he was sitting right there in plain sight, plunking on the banjo, and they never noticed. That is brilliant. And brilliant. I, I, I mean, it was it was it was, it was a wonderful occasion. Oh, man. Well, I think in closing, I have to say one of the things that really in my research I found hilarious because I was sort of aware of this title uh, from that early entree into discovering a lot of the titles of the underground movement uh, in those bud plant catalogs is the fact that Zippy the Pinhead. Uh -huh. uh, sometime in the, like the 90s or something, it seems like it's in the like, late 90s, early 2000s, was being published in weekly newspaper comic strip format. I'm like, do you have any idea where this, the origins oh, yeah. of this it's, title is? It was hilarious. Zippy has been a very successful mainstream feature. And it was sort of like discovering that um, Marvel had hired um, – Kate Worley to write The Little Mermaid for their children's line um, mm -hmm. many years ago before her passing. And uh, those of us who knew her, I got to meet her uh, meet her, and uh, at a convention many years ago, and mm -hmm. uh, and Reed Waller as well, who were just the oh, most... Oh, yeah, I worked, uh, Todd up. Camp and I worked on their benefit book uh, way back yes. when. I actually still own yeah, the Images of Omaha. Yeah, Images of Omaha. And uh, good folks. Yeah, well, uh, the objective of the independent artist is to get as big as one can get, as one's talents will allow, um, and as well-known and as widespread and as widely seen without compromising the art. Yes. Uh, I think Bill Griffith has accomplished that with Zippy. Absolutely. I think that's one of the – really the amazing thing was that it's like, 
You know, if you can simultaneously have your name on two books that couldn't be more different and couldn't be for a more different audience and age range and appeal, then you have arrived. So uh, yeah. with that, Michael, we want to uh, give you the opportunity to uh, let folks know some of the places they can find your work because you uh, oh. are a busy, busy man. Well, it's uh, it's all over the catalog at Amazon.com. You just keyword my name, and it'll turn up all sorts of uh, nonsense. We'll make all sure right. that gets into the show notes for everyone to get their hands on. I personally <laughs> want to say... Including, we have to mention again, because this comes up every time you're on the show, the not-Marvel Prowler. Check it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. In fact, those are, those are out in two uh, matched collected editions now. Cole, you're going to get sued. Yeah. You have to say not Marvels. Prowler. Oh, yes. Mar yeah. You have to say in the possessed. Actually, actually we, did, we did alter the title a bit. Uh, Tim Truman and I altered the title. Uh, now, on the collected editions, it is Leo Cragg with a K, Prowler. Oh, really? There you oh, go. Yeah, yeah we, uh, we said, okay, so what will distinguish this and not alter the uh, sense of the book? Well... How well, about you definitely, his civilian name? You don't want the uh, Amazon review saying, well, I couldn't find Spider-Man anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we do we do have a new edition of, uh, of the Carnival of Souls graphic novel just out. Really? From Carnival Comics, new publisher. Awesome. Man, you are I, – I, this world is blessed with you in it, Michael. And I, I don't say that I'm not – I'm not – trying to do the podcaster to the horn of the guest thing it is a genuine pleasure in my life when you come on this show and you talk because i learned my pleasure my so pleasure much. indeed um and your stories are, are fantastic and <laughs> we need to we need to work on having you we we try to ask sparingly because like you said if you go to amazon you can see this this you know litany of of work that you've you know, put yourself into, we know you're busy, but you know, it is, it is a Christmas morning occasion when you come on this show. For <laughs> so true. Yeah. Always, always a pleasure on this end. Well, very good. Um, I suppose this is my cue to wrap us up on our end. I and, do. Uh, we're I coming. love it. I love it when Mike's, when Michael's on, when Michael Bryce is on, because Cole and I are so taken aback by the conversation that we forget how to podcast. Yeah, so like, and, is this the time when and, we're and, supposed to do the thing? I don't remember. But, because... but we're also not only slightly, I think, significantly more professional in certain aspects. Yes, that's true. <laughs> because well, if you let it play like a good conversation, then you've got a program. That's exactly. right. But it, you know, Cole and I, in any and, other instance, will just talk over each other and yell and scream at each other and just make <laughs> horrible jokes and do bad impressions. When you're here, we are 100 yeah. percent on our uh, subconsciously best behavior, Michael. That's right. <laughs> this is like when I had have my dad on my live show. Oh yeah. <laughs> is I I'm actually much much more focused when dad's there because I'm trying to make a good impression because I know he's not going to watch the other shows. <laughs> With that, we're coming to you from the Jedi Cole universe at JediCole.com. You can write to us at 
jcumail at yahoo.com. And uh, the aforementioned live shows, be sure and check uh, myself and Eddie Medina out with our Star Wars podcast on DallasOnAir.com. First and third Sundays of every month, live streaming out of beautiful downtown Dallas from the Dallas On Air studios. 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. Central with the Rantcore Pit Live. And the third Sundays of every month, including this one coming up, my other show, Isle of Toys. That's A-I-S-L-E, uh, <laughs> even though I love toys. And um, different guests and topics each week where I explore all kinds of toys, including ones I have no idea about and don't care about, but I love talking about them nonetheless. And that is 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Central, preceding the Rancor Pit, third Sunday of every month. There you go. You can find us on your... I'm going to turn over to the young one who takes care of all the the computer (laughs) stuff. G. Cole, thanks! Um... (laughs) Did you, like, flip me a buffalo nickel? Is that what you just did? Here you go, son. Scram, kid. You bother me. Uh, you can find us on the Facebooks, the Instagrams, and the Twitters at HK Comics Show. Um, we've gotten a lot more um, active on there recently um, and uh, have no intention of, of stopping that. So if you want to find, you know, it, our, our – we're going to include more on our website as far as cold. Aren't you, are you still writing? Is, is that coming? I am actually composing an article on uh, an amazing happenstance from just a week or so ago where uh, Catherine and I got to bring some of my youth full circle and visited uh, the uh, studios, the warehouse of distortions unlimited in Greeley, Colorado uh, and nothing was more amazing than having founder Ed Edmonds uh, gleefully pronounce when I was mentioning to the guy who let us in that the first mask I ever bought from Distortions Unlimited was the uh, one called Time Traveler. And to hear this voice just, you know, just with such happiness, Time Traveler? I'm like, I know that voice from the show about Distortions Unlimited. So. <laughs> Uh, there is so much to tell on that. I'm still working up the text for that. So okay. look for that very soon on the JC. And I'm bringing back Jedi Justifications. It came from the dollar store and some other features I haven't done in forever. There you go. So at HK Comics Show on all of your social medias. Um, Michael, again, thank you so, oh, so thank much. You. Just Delighted. Just, Let's do it again. I Absolutely. will take you up on that offer, sir. Um, so uh, say goodnight, Cole. Good night, everybody. And go uh, – discover the wonderful world of underground comics it is as fascinating as it is bizarre and and discover michael price's work uh, we'll have the link on the show post so you found it there so go ahead and click it and uh buy the soundtrack to the <laughs> to the show that he did our crumb comics yes insane. Oh my. um again michael thank you so much uh, for gracing us with your presence and uh, join us next week for more Hey Kids Comics. <laughs> Say goodnight, everybody. All right, then. Good night.